Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Well, Nikki, we are launching into the second half of Daniel. It's kind of a momentous event because it is the part of the book that has caused me the most apoplexy in the past. (laughs) This is the prophetic section, and that has been a very big deal in Adventism. So here we are launching into this part of the book that is kind of daunting. Yeah, it's intimidating. Yeah. So before we look at this part of the chapter that we're going to look at in Daniel 7, can you just talk to me about what you thought of prophecy as an Adventist? Sure. Well, to begin with, I glazed over because I never thought I could possibly be smart enough to figure it out. There were many, many theologians in the world from various denominations of Christianity who had different ideas about what prophecy meant. Yeah. We had the advantage of having a prophet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We had a special view of prophecy. (laughs) (laughs) And she told us what it meant, but even understanding her and even understanding what the Adventist system fleshed out of it was really hard to do. Oh, yeah. So I glazed over personally, but I thought of prophecy as being something that God gave to us, but concealed. It yes. was it was meant to conceal information. Mm-hmm. And I think I sort of had the same idea about prophecy that I had about the Sabbath. So the Sabbath being a big test for the last day is concealed in scripture, in Adventism. It's not overtly stated. Mm-hmm. You have to get there through a series of assumptions right. that we were given by our prophetess. And so we had this special knowledge. We were smart enough. We figured it out. We unlocked the key. We knew how to make it through the last days. You line yourself with God by keeping the Jewish Sabbath. Right. And so really smart people figured that out. And that's sort of what I thought of prophecy, that God put this really hard stuff in scripture for us. He concealed important information. Mm -hmm. And it's like only the strong survive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, isn't that the truth? That's just sort of how I thought about it. What about you? Well, I went to Adventist schools. So in junior high, it seems like junior high is where all these doctrines hit me in Bible class. I had to learn the time prophecy based on Daniel. Um, Daniel, what, seven, nine, eight? And um, I did. I memorized these things. I learned the chart. I put the dates in. But for the life of me, I could never exactly remember them all, and I couldn't tell you what exactly it all meant. And I'd look at the Bible, and I'd look at these texts where they would tell me these verses were and where these ideas were, and it didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I just felt eternally, terminally confused about it. And like I've said before, I really was looking forward to taking Daniel on Revelation in college from the chairman of the religion department, Gordon Balheri, in summer school one summer. And I thought, I'll finally figure it out. This is a really learned guy. He's been at this for years. He can make this plain to me. And I got into the class and it was just as confusing as seventh grade Bible. And he did (laughs) not finish his curriculum. And it was years later that I looked back and thought, I know why he didn't finish the curriculum. He couldn't actually teach it either, because he knew there were problems with the Adventist idea of eschatology, the investigative judgment, and everything else that came out of supposedly Daniel and Revelation. So, yeah, it was confusing. 
So we're looking at verses 1 through 8 in Daniel 7. And there probably needs to be a little bit of background before we actually launch into this, because we've come through the historic portion of the book. I kind of like what J. Vernon McGee says about the book of Daniel. He said this, The first six chapters contained the historic night with prophetic light. The last six chapters are prophetic light in the historic night. Whereas in the first section of the book, the emphasis was upon the historical, the emphasis will now be on the prophetic, yet still with a historical background. And I like that because it came as a kind of surprise to me when I was studying for this podcast to look at the years these different things happened. And the beginning of Daniel 7, with Daniel's first revelation of the beasts, this vision actually occurred before Daniel 5. Nikki, what happened in Daniel 5? That's Belshazzar's feast. Right. When the handwriting on the wall came, you always thought of it in blood, and I thought of it in flames based on the art. <laughs> That's right. We don't know. Yeah. But it was the curse and the sentence of doom on Babylon and Belshazzar himself. And it was the night that Babylon fell. Exactly. That was Belshazzar. And what we learn is that this first vision in Daniel 7.1 occurs in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign, and that was about 553 BC, and Daniel would have been about 67 years old. We know that the fall of Babylon happened in 539, so this first vision happened about 14 years before the fall of Babylon. The second vision of these beasts, which occurs in Daniel 8, happened in the third year of King Belshazzar. So Daniel would have been about 69 years old. Now, I didn't understand the relationship of any of this as an Adventist, or even actually before preparing for this podcast. I didn't think about the the years these things happened. But I find it really fascinating, Nikki, that Daniel has actually dated these visions. I mean, he's put in to the script of his visions when they happened. Mm -hmm. So they're historically verifiable. We can hook them to what we know from secular history. Yeah. I love that about scripture. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. (laughs) So we know that that's true. And we also know that in Daniel 5, when Belshazzar saw that handwriting on the wall, he didn't think about Daniel. He had to be reminded by the queen mother. And so they brought Daniel in, and of course, Daniel interpreted the handwriting. What it looks like is that Daniel was somewhat forgotten, put out to the corners of the kingdom or whatever in Belshazzar's reign. Belshazzar wasn't paying much attention to him, and Daniel was an older man. But what's so interesting is that God wasn't done with Daniel. There's no such thing as retirement when you're God's person. (laughs) And God brought Daniel a whole new job And it was these visions with increasing clarity and increasing detail of the future of the nations for all of us to have, to know what was happening when it happened. Yeah. I had never understood that there was a witness even to the structure of the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7 is the last chapter written in Aramaic. And in chapter 8 begins Hebrew. And chapter 7 is like a panoramic of what God is going to do. My understanding is that Daniel 7 gives us a blueprint for Bible prophecy. It gives us something to hold on to when we're looking at other things moving forward. And I also didn't understand that the vision that Daniel's going to have in chapter 7 mirrors the vision he had 
in two with the statue and that the statue was from the perspective of man. Yeah. And the vision we're going to talk about today was from God's perspective. So it's fascinating that you have Daniel interpreting to man, man's perspective in chapter two. Uh But in chapter seven, you have angels from heaven interpreting to Daniel, God's perspective of what's going to unfold. That's very interesting. So the nature of these empires becomes more clear in Daniel 7, because it's from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, being at the time of his vision, a very narcissistic pagan king, was flattered by the beauty of this incredible four-metal statue he saw that Mm -hmm. described. But yeah, these beasts are going to reflect those particular divisions in the statue, but showing us their true character. Yeah their nature and and what they're going to do. I love the fact that the language changes. And so we see this this Aramaic talking about, you know, the prophetic course of Gentile dominion. And then we move into Hebrew where we see God's plan for the nation of Israel. You know, Nikki, that was a brand new thing to me. Uh, There was no hint of that to me as I was memorizing the charts in junior high. (laughs) In fact, I didn't know that the book of Daniel was written in two languages until well after I came out of Adventism. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing it for the first time in a women's Bible study when we, we spent a half a year going through the book of Daniel. That was a fast trip through Daniel. But, you know, I had never heard some of these things before, and my goodness, to think that God, all those years ago, confirmed His message in such a profound way. Because as we know, liberal scholars like to say Daniel was written after the fact. Mm -hmm. You were talking to me a bit about that. What did they say? Well, according to Precept Austin, it's one of my favorite resources for preparing for these podcasts, they were saying that liberal scholars struggle with predictive prophecy. They don't believe in predictive prophecy. And so whenever you get something that's really accurate, it becomes a point of contention. They contest it. They say, that can't be. This must have been written later. You you can't get that accurate. But, you know, if God is sovereign, yeah. and He is, and He's omniscient, then you can get that accurate. Yes. And it's interesting that these very specific prophecies in Daniel, many of them have already been fulfilled very specifically, just as these visions said. It was interesting also, I read in the introduction to Daniel in my NASB study Bible, that the form of Hebrew and the form of Aramaic in the book of Daniel and the manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, are very early forms of Hebrew and Aramaic. In fact, they're so early that some of the original translators of the Bible did not know the languages from that far back, and they weren't even always sure of what some of the words meant. So, they were in the very earliest translations, sometimes translated inaccurately. But as linguistic studies have improved, older manuscripts have become available, it's become more and more clear. This is accurate. This is written at the time Daniel lived, it's original stuff, and these are older forms of Aramaic and Hebrew, so it can't have been written later. The language itself precludes an after-the-fact writing. And something else that was really fun to, to learn as I was preparing for this is that the nature of apocalyptic literature is to reveal, not conceal. And so, my previous understanding that God did this to conceal things, I think I treated it like the parables, you know, this right. is only for certain people to understand. But in fact, the word behind apocalyptic literature 
is the lifting of a lid, the taking off the covering of something. And later apocalyptic literature is building on previous yes. apocalyptic literature. So it's not just that we have these books that you just kind of walk circles around and avoid because they're impossible to understand. They actually build on each other. And if you read them, they tell you what they mean. Yes, they do. It's like spiritual truth not previously revealed is revealed in apocalyptic literature. And I found that to just be an interesting insight too, because like you, Nikki, I'd kind of always thought of it as, you know, confusion and we weren't supposed to really know, mm-hmm. but, you know, it was kind of a test of IQ to see how well you could put together the puzzle. Like, what could you make of this? <laughs> I um, treated it like math. I don't do numbers. <laughs> I don't do prophecy. <laughs> and, you know, there are very clear verses in scripture that tell us not to despise prophecy. That's true. So here we are moving into prophecy. I think we just need to read these first eight verses. Okay. So this is in the NASB version. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Scary stuff. Makes me think of the uh, James White Library at Andrews where they have the paper mache beasts from, what, 1906? (laughs) They were terrible representations of these beasts, but they were pretty fearsome. (laughs) And isn't it funny that Adventists have used these beasts as the primary attraction for their prophecy seminars for over 100 years? Yeah, they're they're actually comical. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, when we look at this passage, just starting with the very first verse, what do you see there? What does it tell us? It gives us a year. This is Belshazzar's first year of his reign. But Daniel, who apparently is not real active in the court right now, is seeing dreams and visions in his mind. Where is he when he sees these? And interestingly, is this written in first, second, or third person, verse number one? Daniel's in his bed, and he, so he's having dreams and visions. This is a pattern. <laughs> yes, it is. This is in the third person. 
at this point. Yeah. Daniel is not being named as I. It's like someone's talking about him. And, you know, I had never actually asked myself this question before, but I I read it in one of the commentaries I was looking at, and it was some people look at this first verse and say, Daniel isn't speaking of himself in the first person. So, who really wrote this? Did he really write the book of Daniel? And it was interesting because this commentator just, he did the most logical thing, and it was pretty interesting to me because as an Adventist, this never would have occurred to me. He said, Jesus settled that question for us. Mm-hmm. Daniel wrote this because in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus is referring to Daniel's words and he just comes out and says, spoken through the prophet Daniel. Mm-hmm. So the whole book of Daniel, the second person of the Godhead attributed to Daniel. So we can know this is Daniel's book. Yeah. And that's the right hermeneutic. <laughs> Jesus is hermeneutic. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The one who gave the visions. (laughs) So, in the second verse, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Well, what do we know about the four winds of heaven and the great sea? Well, we know that when it's talking about the four winds of heaven, that it's referring to something spiritual. And the word for winds can also mean angels. So, this is a decree by God. Something is happening. They're from heaven. Yeah. And the great sea is very often thought of as just people. Right. Nations. Many commentators think that this is referring to the Mediterranean Sea because all of these nations that Babylon managed and conquered and ruled over were pretty much in the area of the Mediterranean. And to be sure, that could be partially in view here, because the Great Sea was what that Mediterranean Sea was often called. But the fact is that in eschatological literature, we find other references to the sea And we find references that actually tell us that it's referring to the people and the nations. In Isaiah 57, 20, it says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And Revelation 17, 15 has the angel saying to John, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In Matthew 13, 47, Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So there's references from both Old Testament, prophetic literature, and Jesus himself that refer to the sea as a metaphor for the nations, for humanity, for people. It's not just Israel. It's not just one group. It's humanity at large. Another thing I thought that was interesting, Nikki, was what you said about the winds being spiritual. And I I had read one commentator that mentioned that the fact that it's talking about the four winds from heaven, you know, here on earth, when we have wind, we identify the direction it's coming from. We have a west wind, we have an east-northeast wind, we have a south wind or whatever. But we have here four winds from heaven blowing the great sea. That image, knowing what we know about wind and water, 
would be a terrible storm. I mean, it wouldn't be possible just in an earthly setting. But if you did have wind blowing from that many different directions, you would have uncontrollable chaos in the waters. Yeah, and and it's interesting, too, that of all of the references to wind in the Bible, more than 50% of the uses of wind in Scripture refer to God's sovereignty and causing something to happen. And it's often judgment. The winds are often associated with judgment. So you combine that with the stirring up and the language there is it's a churning up. According to Precept Austin, the Septuagint translates it with the Greek verb, which means to strike, to dash against, to blow violently upon, and it's in the imperfect tense. So it pictures that it's happening over and over. So you get this this image of this chaotic judgment sovereignly decreed by God on the earth from every direction like you're talking about. Isn't that interesting? I find that just fascinating, actually, when you think about what the words mean. It's also interesting to me that in Revelation 7, 1, there's a little more detail here, but there um, John has a vision and he sees four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. So, John gets the same idea with even more specificity, angels Mm -hmm. from heaven holding back the winds and they're going to be released. And that's called scripture interpreting scripture. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's pretty amazing, huh? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, why don't we look at verse 3 where he sees what happens with the sea. So, four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. And then in 4, we read about the first one. You know, it's interesting as an Adventist, and probably even before I ever read Daniel as a Christian, I thought people just gave their best guesses about the beasts. But it's so clear. It's so clear when you look at archaeology and scripture and previous revelations, prophecies given to Daniel, it becomes so clear what these things mean. It's not a leap, a guess. Right. So the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And it's so cool to learn that the gates of Babylon had lions on With them. With wings. <laughs> <laughs> and the lion is considered the king of the jungle, right? It's the king of kings. And Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings on earth. Yes. Um, so we so we get the picture that this is lined up with the statue, with the gold head. This is referring to Babylon. Yeah. So you have this lion with the wings of an eagle, and he kept looking until its wings were plucked. And then it was lifted from the ground, made to stand on feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. And doesn't this give you a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Yeah. He's the king of kings. He's conquered all of these kingdoms. He's created these incredible universities in this beautiful landscape. And he thinks so highly of himself. He makes a golden statue. Mm -hmm. And then God humbles him. Through that process of being humbled, you think of those wings being plucked that represent swiftness and power. But his mind returns to him when he acknowledges God as sovereign, as God being the Lord of kings. And he's made to rise up on his feet and he's given the mind of a man. I've read commentators who say that in this vision of the lion, 
being made to stand up and being given the mind of a man, that this actually is a reference back to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, as you were saying, and that that standing up and being given the mind of a man, as opposed to all the beastly manifestations of this kingdom and of the person himself when he was out to pasture, that that is an indication of his conversion and Mm -hmm. belief in the true God. I actually think that's true based on that story in Daniel 4. It was also interesting to me to realize that this particular beast, the lion, which represents Babylon, really was an amazing and magnificent kingdom. Archaeology has shown to us that at the center of Babylon was a giant ziggurat patterned after the Tower of Babel. It had like corkscrew runways going up its side to the very top where there were altars for human sacrifices. And this has been discovered with excavations. They've also discovered that Babylon had a postal system that was outstanding in the world. The um, palaces and houses there had interior bathtubs with brass plumbing. I mean, I never knew that there was internal plumbing in houses as far back as Babylon. (laughs) They had very literate people with a giant library in the city. And then, of course, the 300-foot wall that we mentioned before that was wide enough for four chariots to go around side by side. So this was a magnificent city, huge, wealthy. And yet at the heart of it was satanic worship, human sacrifice. And it's so interesting to me to think that in this vision that Daniel has, it's actually showing us what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this kingdom reigned for years, but at the heart of it was this horrible man who was given the mind of a man at the end, Mm -hmm. and he trusted the God of Daniel. You know, it makes me think of Psalm 73, where the psalmist is upset because all of the evil men are prospering and doing well. And then he goes into the temple of the Lord, and he's humbled, and he confesses to God, and he says, I was like a beast before you. He likened his his faithlessness to being a beast. And it's just, I don't know, it brings, yeah. and then he, when he confesses and returns to God in his prayer and in the psalm, you see that humbling. This just reminds me of that psalm for some reason. Well, I can see that. And I think there's something really significant here. I'm not even sure how to explain it or how far to take it, but... This beast-likeness of all of these kingdoms is actually depicting their evil. It's showing their evil natures, their evil, selfish, ungod-centered purpose for living. And here we have this picture of this man, this beast being lifted up and given the mind of a man. And isn't that fascinating that when the Lord Jesus came and took the body of a man— He exalted humanity. He did what we couldn't do because He was also God. And He has restored the image of God fully in spiritual ways to the born again who trust Him. And He's restored what His intention was for man through His death on the cross. I just, there's something here (laughs) about man contrasted with beast. (laughs) Nikki, would you talk to us a bit about that second vision, the second animal? So the second animal he sees is something that resembles a bear, and it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And then the text says, thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. So regarding the the 
beast itself that's like a bear. This was very descriptive of the Medes and Persians and their their military methods uh, being raised up on one side. Commentators have suggested that that's related to the imbalance of power between the Medes and the Persians. One Mm -hmm. was always more dominant than the other. And then you had read some interesting stuff about the way that their military traveled. Yeah, that was interesting to me too. Unlike the strength and cruelty and well-organized armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the Medes and Persians were more cumbersome and slow, like a bear, Mm -hmm. plodding but relentless, and they were going to get their prey. First of all, the three ribs are likely the three kingdoms that the Medes and the Persians conquered and ruled. The kingdom of Lydia, conquered in 546 BC, then Babylon, and we already know that story, Daniel 5, in 539 BC, where the Medes tunneled under the wall, and then Egypt in 525 BC. But what was so interesting was the way their armies traveled. They even took their families with them on their missions. And it is said that Xerxes, a later king of this kingdom, led about 300,000 men and 300 ships against Greece and was defeated in the process. He didn't ever conquer Greece because at that time it was not yet God's will for, as one commentator put it, for the East to control the West at that time. But they were persistent, they were powerful, they were strong, they were cruel, but they traveled slowly and even took their families with them. Who would do that? (laughs) The Medes and the Persians, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, and, and one commentator suggested that, you know, they're much larger than a lion, and they suggested that could be related to the fact that they conquer more territory. One of the things I thought was interesting is this phrase, thus they said to it. Yes. So this is in the the masculine plural, and the bear is being told to arise and devour much meat, and they did. They conquered a lot of land. They had more land than Babylon had, Mm -hmm. and he, he had like all the known earth at the time. So that's fascinating to me. But that masculine plural, it has a picture of the sovereign decree of God. Yes. So then following the bear, uh, what happens next in verse six? We keep seeing him say, I was looking, I was looking into, or I was looking intently, or I kept looking. He was very fascinated with what he was seeing. And then this, and behold, that follows it, gives the the picture of surprise. Yeah. So he's really going through something while he's watching these visions. Oh, I can only imagine. So the next beast that comes up out of the water is like a leopard. And it had four wings of a bird on its back. And it had four heads. And dominion was given to it. And so commentators have said that this third beast, the leopard, would represent Greece. So Nebuchadnezzar, his beast had two wings. Yes. And it represented the swiftness of his army. But people have said that this represents Alexander the Great. And he was four wings swift. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was even swifter. Uh, I didn't realize how quickly Alexander the Great had conquered all the land that he had conquered. It was 10 years. He started when he was 20. Um, it was interesting. I didn't know a lot about this part of history 
because, you know, I always glazed over because I couldn't remember dates and so forth. So um, I looked up Alexander the Great and I learned that he was the son of Philip of Macedon, Philip II of Macedon. And he took the throne when he was 20 years old. I think about that and I think, okay, how old are my sons? My sons are (laughs) in their mid to late 30s now. A 20-year-old is very young, actually just out of the teens. But he was brilliant. He took the throne when he was 20, and he spent the next 10 years conquering the known earth. His kingdom is huge compared to the first two. By the time he was 32, he was done conquering, and he is reputed to have said he was just despondent because there was nothing left to do, nothing left to conquer. What we learn is that at the age of 32, he died after a drunken orgy. Now, that's it, what's interesting is that he didn't die the night of his drunken orgy, but that it was in the year 323 BC when he died. And he was actually, surprisingly to me, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in the city of Babylon when he died. And he had been drinking with some friends, and the next day he became ill. Now, historians differ when they describe the way he died or the symptoms of his disease, but they all agree he died 10 or 11 days after that drinking party. He apparently lost the ability to communicate, became unconscious, perhaps a fever. Some said no, but he died. And there are many people who actually speculate that he was somehow poisoned with a long-acting poison. Now, it was interesting also, and this sort of put him in a particular part of history for me that I'd never connected with the Bible before. He was tutored as a young man by the Greek philosopher Aristotle. That's so interesting. Isn't that? Mm -hmm. So, we think of Aristotle and we think of the Greek culture and the Greek contributions to education and to government. And as an Adventist, I never connected that with the biblical stories in Daniel. It always seemed to me that what was going on in Daniel was long before any of that stuff that affects us. Mm -hmm. No, Alexander the Great was Greek from that empire in the statue and from that beast, and he was taught by Aristotle. So he had four heads. This beast had four heads, and I didn't understand that when Alexander the Great had died that his kingdom was divided among four generals. Yeah. That was really interesting to see. These beasts become less mysterious when we get the view from the human perspective. Right? History actually confirms these visions. Yeah. And we know that the general named Cassander took Macedonia, Lysimachus took Asia Minor, Seleucus took Syria, and interestingly, Syria is where the little horn of Daniel 8 comes Antiochus Epiphanes, and that's the little horn that Adventism has so misrepresented, and the whole investigative judgment has come out of that, and we'll talk about that later. And then Ptolemy took Egypt and the Holy Land. Cleopatra came out of that line. But this whole Greco-Macedonian empire, this whole takeover of Greece and the division of it into four Um, different subcategories with these four generals. This all falls chronologically between the Old and the New Testaments. So, the Bible doesn't have an actual description of this part of Jewish history, but we know from secular history that this is when the Jews in Palestine endured their greatest suffering at the hands of Egypt 
and Syria. And the whole story of the Maccabees comes out of this time period. So the text says that dominion was given to this particular beast. And this was so interesting. Donald Campbell wrote about Alexander. He says, did Alexander imagine that it was his military genius alone that enabled him and his small army of 35,000 men to defeat the massive hordes of the Persians numbering, some believe, in the millions? Wow. So this incredible work of Alexander the Great that we all hear about, Christian or not, we all hear about his yeah. his conquering and his genius. This came because God gave dominion to him. That's right. This was God's plan. And I have heard other historians say that because of what Alexander did in spreading the Greek empire to every part of the known world at that time, the Greek language became established as the common language Culture was set up according to Greek thought and Greek government, and the world was prepared for the coming of Christ by what Alexander accomplished, giving a common language that the New Testament would be written in, that everybody would be able to read. This is just fascinating. This was God's doing. And it fascinates me, too, that if we go back to the beginning of this passage, where we saw that there were four angels that were churning and stirring up the seas, and you have the picture of judgment in there, in the middle of this, and these beasts are coming out of it, and Alexander the Great is coming out of this, judgment God is providing at the same time. Yes. At the same time that all of this turmoil is occurring and these beasts are misbehaving. Yes. <laughs> and killing each other. Yeah. God's providing for the church, for the Messiah. He's bringing about his endgame. Absolutely. The fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. Mm-hmm. He's, he's moving into that fulfillment. It's just amazing to me. When you step back and look at it mm-hmm. from the 30,000-foot view. <laughs> so, go ahead and tell us about the fourth beast. So, this begins in verse 7. He says, After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. He doesn't even try to... Tell us what it's like. And the other ones, he said it was like a bear, like a leopard, like a lion. This one, he can't even Mm -mm. compare it to anything. It's unlike anything anyone's seen. But it's very strong, and it terrified him. And then he tells that as he's watching this beast, which had ten horns, another little horn came up among those ten, pulled out by the roots three of the first horns before it. And this little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering grave boasts. There's a lot about this beast that's just very confusing and strange and unprecedented. And Daniel hardly knows how to talk about it. But let's just walk through some of these descriptions. Uh, Nikki, you were talking about those iron teeth and also how this corresponds to part of the statue. So, this fourth kingdom is corresponding with the fourth kingdom in the statue, which is made of iron. In Daniel 2, it says, There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So, like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So, there's... One commentator who stated in Precept Austin, 
He says, from history, we know that the Roman armies were known for their iron armor, which led some to refer to them as the iron legions of Rome, emphasizing their strength and invincibility. But in the sovereign irony, pun intended, of God, (laughs) the crushing kingdom was itself to be crushed by the stone cut without hands. So in the vision of the image with the metals, that last kingdom, that last empire is described as iron. And now this nondescript, unique beast is described with its iron teeth and its crushing power, crushing all the rest. And when you put that together with the passage you just read from Daniel 2, you realize the rest are those other nations. Mm -hmm. This beast is different And we also understand that the ten horns, which, what animal do you know that has ten horns? But this beast with the ten horns, what do those ten horns correspond to from the previous vision? They parallel the ten toes. Now, interestingly, let's think back to that image of the statue. What part of the image has the toes? The feet. Yeah. And it seems to be the last part Mm -hmm. of the empire, but there's still iron there, Mm -hmm. which is the thing that all of us are still curious about. You know, we don't see an empire of Rome flourishing like it did then, but that iron never went away. Yeah. In the statue, it's iron mixed with clay. Yes. And now in this fourth beast with the 10 horns, he's still got those crushing iron teeth and there's a terrifying little horn that comes out of it and uproots three of the others. Now, what does this mean? We don't know for sure, but what do we know about that little horn? The horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So it's a blasphemous humanoid type representation. This horn is representing somebody that's apparently similar to a man or a man and is boastful and Mm -hmm. they're boasting in a self-centered sort of way. You know, as I was reading on Precept Austin, they were talking about different ways of approaching prophecy and they use a hermeneutic that accepts the literal reading of the text. Of course, taking into consideration the genre, this is prophetic literature, but there are people who have said that the 10 horns were consecutive. They came Uh at different times. Well, first of all, if we look at the statue, it's a fixed object. Yes. There were two feet, 10 toes, and they existed in the same level. Yeah. Same plane. Same plane. Mm -hmm. And in this text, if we look at the words carefully, we see that the 10 horns existed together. Absolutely. And then the 11th horn comes up and uproots three of them, Mm -hmm. which would also indicate that they were existing together in order to uproot all three at one point in time. We don't really know what that means, but if we're reading consistently and using a consistent hermeneutic, it will prevent us from putting on it things that aren't there. Right. And using the statue as a reference is extremely important because this is apparently representing the same empire and representing the same times in history, or in this case, the future. And there are people who have suggested that the horn that comes up, the 11th horn that comes up is the Antichrist. Yes. So if that's the case, and I can't prove it, but it's interesting that if the statue is human history from man's perspective, we don't have an 11th toe that shows up. No. But the beasts are human history from God's perspective, and that horn shows up. Only God knows the timing 
and the person who the person of the Antichrist is. And we won't know until he decides to reveal that to us. That's true. So hunting for the Antichrist and everything, it can become a hobby, (laughs) but I wouldn't call it healthy or something that we're supposed to do. But it's something that is here in Scripture so that when it happens, it will be clear to us what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's one of the things about these prophecies that's so profound. Those first three beasts, we can see from history exactly how that was fulfilled. We Mm -hmm. can even see how Nebuchadnezzar was made into a beast and he was restored and given the mind of a man. We can see how Medo-Persia came in with its uneven power between the Medes and the Persians, the Persians overtaking the dominance of the Medes as time went on. We can see what they conquered. We have historical records. And then Alexander the Great, one of the most iconic people in the history of Western civilization. There he is. And here are the four kingdoms. And so this fourth beast, we can count on it that we will recognize the fulfillment of this beast when it happens. Mm-hmm. We can know it's coming, even if we can't say exactly how. I find it interesting that in Revelation 13, there's a description of a strange beast that comes out of the sea that very much resembles this fourth beast of Daniel 7. John sees this, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Now, we don't see seven heads in Daniel's beast, but there are the ten horns with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was, and get this, like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Well, we can't say for sure what any of these things are going to represent, but we can see the similarity to this fourth beast of Daniel. Mm-hmm. Now, what struck you about the way this beast in John, in John's revelation, looked? It's like a compilation of all of them, isn't it? Yes. It has the leopard of Babylon there. It has feet like a bear's. It has a mouth like a lion's, which would be cruel and tearing like Babylon. It has, you know, being like a leopard would suggest the speed and the efficiency of Greece. I mean, we don't know, but this is a clear echo of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. You know, I can't help but think about how I would react as an Adventist to these kind of pictures and to this even being in the Bible. And I think I I would have heard all of this and thought, I have to understand this in order to be okay. I'm not going to be okay. This is scary. And I need to know what all of this means in order to be saved and to, to please God through all of this. But looking back now at Daniel, the one who was given these original visions of these beasts and what's going to happen in human history, there was nothing Daniel could do to change any of what God was going to do. That's true. All this did for Daniel was give him information that further supported the fact that he already knew that God is sovereign and at work in human history. I think it's so interesting that this vision is showing the future of the Gentile nations from God's perspective, showing their cruelty, their narcissism, 
their raging lust for power and control, and yet also seeing that they are being sent at exactly the time God intends them to come, and they will be replaced at exactly the time God intends for them to be replaced. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that Luke 21, verses 20 to 24 have Jesus saying this. Now, he is speaking in this context to his disciples, and likely the destruction of Jerusalem by the armies of Rome is in view here, but there is a clause at the very end that is significant. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. And then we'll skip down to verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we don't exactly know when that is or how it will happen, but these visions of the beasts suggest that very same thing. These are visions of the times of the Gentiles. And we know from Jesus that the Gentiles will trample Jerusalem, will trample the holy city, the holy land, and that there is coming an end to the times of the Gentiles. And we see here in Daniel 7, and next week, we will see this even more clearly. But just like the vision of the image said, these Gentile nations will come to an end when the Lord Jesus sets up his kingdom. That's coming. So, as we continue looking at Daniel 7 and seeing what these visions say and allowing ourselves not to have to know what they don't say, we trust God. And here's what I want to say. If you haven't trusted the Lord Jesus to have taken care of your sin, to have brought you to new life in Him through the indwelling of His Spirit, if you haven't been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son by trusting the blood of Jesus, His death, and His resurrection on the third day according to Scripture, then these visions will be terrifying. But they don't have to terrify us. When we know the Lord, we know that we know the Lord of history and the Lord of the future. And we are safe in Him. And if you haven't trusted Him yet, now's the time to do it. Join us next week as we continue working through Daniel 7 with a look at verses 9 through 14. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.